Tonight's thought, things are getting so complicated these days that I feel I need to simplify, right? We all, we all need to simplify, honestly, but I really need to try it. I don't know about you, but I just feel like I need to start small, maybe like start with this podcast, just simplify things and not just maybe take the show back to like the basics, the early days of podcasting, but, but go beyond that. Go, go back to the basics of radio, right? Like people, people feel these days like they're too good for radio, right? Like it was too simple a form of entertainment. You, you turn the music on in the morning and music stops. You hear a DJ talking and all that, and they're, like, telling you goofy local interest stories and and playing fart noises, and, you know, people just feel like they're too good for fart noises these days, and I I say, like, we need to go back to that, like, simplify, go back to the fart noises, make America make, you know, fart noises again, and, you know, I I can do that on this show, I, I have a soundboard. Right, I'll give you an example, show you what I mean. So, you know, I, I tell stories on this show, so I'll, I'll, tell, I'll tell you a story. So, the other night, I um, get a hanker on for, you know, a Coca-Cola, and I walk down the street to the Chevron, and I get my Coke, and I stand in line, and, you know, there's my, uh, there's my friend Buzz there uh, working the counter. And I've known Be- Buzz for so many years now that I, I've given him a nickname. I call him Chevron Buzz, right? And I see that uh, he doesn't actually even notice that I walk in. He's really uh, immersing himself in some activity. And I see him there uh, at the counter behind the cash register uh, under the that week's mural of the uh, wall of shame. You know, these would be like still photos taken from the closed circuit security system that they have in the store of uh, people who have stolen things uh, from the Chevron that week. And I'll admit that it's always kind of a form of entertainment to stand in line while you're waiting to be rung up and, you know, look at um, people that week who've, like, stolen uh, alcohol and Ritz crackers and toilet paper, even though there is kind of something that's sad about that. I mean, you have to admit that, uh, you know, public shaming is something that a very simple thing in this world that we all still participate in and kind of enjoy against our, uh, our better defenses, but... I digress. So uh, I get up to uh, the counter and uh, Buzz, uh, I see that Chevron Buzz is what he's working on is he's drawing a sketch uh, on a notepad there. And it's a really good sketch, too. And it's a sketch of like an old hag, you know, like the stock character of the haggy old lady um, who's got like um, curlers in her hair and like a cigarette sticking out of her mouth. And um, 
you know, like those uh, those tights that are all wrinkled up a, a, around the knee. And I uh, I tell Buzz, I was like, hey, man, that's really crummy. And he looks up and he's like, well, I'm not that good. And I said, no, I mean, it's like, you know, it's it looks like something that R. Crumb would have drawn. You know, he's like, oh, yeah, <laughs> that's funny. And he asked me if I know who that is. And I, I say, well, it kind of looks like um, Vicki Lawrence from like the Mama's Family television show from the 80s. And he's like, oh, man, that's so close. He says, it's actually Miss uh, Miss Wiggins. Um, and being several years away from Buzz and age, I'm, I'm not really familiar with the old Carol Burnett show. Like, I used to watch it when I was a kid, but I wasn't that big of a fan because it was several years before my time. And uh, he, he says it's uh, Miss Wiggins and all that. And I'm like, oh, okay. I'll have to go back and uh, watch that on YouTube, right? And I say, you know, Buzz, that's that's really good. I've actually got an idea for you uh, now that I know that you're a good drawer. Uh, you should actually um, sketch the people, sketch the wall of shame. Because it's all, it always makes me feel a little bit uneasy, I tell them, that every week, even though I kind of enjoy looking at these pictures of people who have stolen wine and things like that, um, you know, it always makes me feel a little guilty. And, you know, maybe you should just, instead of, like, giving us closed-circuit security footage and pixelated, grainy photographs that don't look that great all the time, um, maybe you should, like, sketch the people who stole things, right, from your, uh, from your store. And uh, it would be like this nice little art project. It wouldn't fully shame people, but it would tell, show people at least, ex kind of give them an idea of what they looked like and show them the items that they stole. And it would get people looking at it. And it would be like this quirky kind of neighborhood local merchant thing and all that. And he's like, you know, that's actually kind of a good idea. I'll do that. And it'll actually give me uh, a way to, you know, show where people conceal things. You know, that's something we can't really, you know, show you on the uh, in the pictures, but I can draw those. And I say, well, what do you mean by that? And he's like, well, I'll give you an example. You know, last week there was a woman who came in here and, you know, she uh, took a bottle of wine and she stuffed it up her... <laughs> you know, I need some practice on the soundboard, but uh, you kind of get the idea. Well, from Birmingham, Alabama, this is the Midnight Citizen Show. I'm your host, Mike Booty. Thank you so much for joining me here tonight. Yeah. It's, uh, this is, uh, first show back from like my one week hiatus hope you didn't miss me and if you did well why are you still listening i don't know yeah but uh we are here in the studio it's another saturday night i took a uh, last week off just because i did four week four shows in a row four weeks in a row on saturday and i just kind of wanted to have the weekend off and i think i'll kind of do that from here on out i'll do like a series of several shows take a week off and uh, give you like a show from the archive or something. Uh, this is a show now that has been going on for, uh, you know, 12 years off and on. 
but you know, mostly mo- mostly more on than off, and I'm glad to report that. So you know, um, it's just uh, it's a fun thing to do here on Saturday night, and I'm glad that you're here, uh, even though you're watching sometime in the future, right? Yeah, I'm I'm joking about you know using like the fart noises and the uh, awugas and all that. Feel like I am a little bit too good for that, but I will say that um, <laughs> you know a few years ago when I discovered these free digital soundboards that you can get for your podcast, it was really eye-opening. And very exciting because as a guy who did grow up listening to radio and was very enamored with, uh, you know, these DJs who can be a little obnoxious, I, uh, I'll be the first to admit that. I just always liked the idea that they had this whole studio at their disposal, this whole studio of, like, sound buttons. And, of course, they all used to be on cart machines. <laughs> You just imagine like the truck unloading at the uh, at the radio station, and you've just got this big box of cart machines. It's nothing but like fart noises, right? Carts full of farts, <laughs> and they they load them into their cart players and uh, play them. But now everything's digitized, so you know all that fart. It's not taking up space. I'm saying that word way too much. The f word. Sorry. Yeah, right. Oh, you know what? The, what the hey? Let's let's play a fart noise just for old times' sake to uh, to send off old time radio and welcome in podcasting. Did I do that right? Yeah, there we go. There we go. And now it's fun, you know, all you got to do is you just got to go like, uh, you know, think of the sound that you want and just go hunt it down on the internet and download it as an MP3 and it's there on your digital soundboard. And, uh, you know, I use, I use Jingle Palette personally, right? Um, totally free. There's some other ones out there, but yeah, it does. It makes you, I don't know if it, it you know, I, I do a podcast that I do publish and I put it out in the world. So to me, it's very real. But I know that there's still a lot of critics out there of podcasters like me that just say, you know, yeah, you're just doing fantasy camp, right? You're just you're making like a radio show host. I don't know. Whatever. You know what I got to say to that? <laughs> so I, I found this uh, sound effect, right, that uh, the I wanted to get like, you know, that old uh that old trope, that car engine sound that's like, awooga, you know, like you would, uh, you know, hit the, <laughs> hit the car, hit the car horn and it would be like, awooga, you know. And uh, I remember there was this uh, scene in this movie Bushwhacked from like the mid 90s starring Daniel Stern. And he says it in that, you know, because it would, I guess it was like adopted by like nightclub comedians who did like sound effects. And, you know, so he would go like, ah. 
you know, exactly. One of the things I love on Jingle Pal is you can kind of like mix it over and over again. You know, you can do like. <laughs> it's like like that, you know. And, you know, you could also get some other. Uh, I found some other good little sound effects there for my soundboard, my digital cart machine. Uh, in that same scene from the movie Bushwhacked, you know, he's like demonstrating for all these, um, you know, campers that he's like kidnapped but in a good way and taken up into the mountains um i don't know so we can hide out from uh federal agents so he's teaching them about uh, the birds and the bees with like barbie dolls so you know he he's like that that that's not working okay all right well that one's that one's out that one's out too So I just pressed a couple buttons and they didn't work. What the hell? My cart machine is all off. I don't know. What in the world? Okay, that one still works. As long as the fart button still works, I'm totally fine. Oh God. So, uh, 13 minutes into the show. I think this is going well. What do you think? Right. Oh, I need goofs. I need a, I need a good laugh right now. Yeah, but the, there's just so much craziness in the world that's been going on the last several years. And I just feel like right now it's kind of coming to the, to a fever pitch. Especially, you know, and I think like the thing that just really overfilled the glass a little bit to me for me this week, you know, like the the um, straw that broke the camel's back or whatever you want to say, whatever metaphor you want to use for just a little bit too much. OK, is um, the 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 weather here in Alabama and, uh, you know, I'm I'm not going to spend the rest of the show talking about the weather, I promise you, but it's just been insane. Uh, yesterday it was 70 degrees and it was actually like balmy outside. It was, uh, I was like turning on the fans in the house. It was like actually a little bit muggy. And, um, then it started raining around five o'clock in the afternoon. And then by seven o'clock in the evening, uh, it was snowing here in, here in Birmingham, Alabama. And I, I, I may be wrong, but I feel like this is actually the most snowfall that we've had in March since I was in the fourth grade in 1993. You know, um, we had a whole like quarter inch accumulation in some areas. <laughs> I mean, you know, that that's just how crazy it is. And uh, the, the snow is all melted. It was all melted by about, um, you know, nine o'clock in the morning. Uh, but it's still cold outside. Uh, you know, like two nights ago, I was sitting outside in short sleeves, smoking a cigar. And uh, tonight I've got to like bundle up. I got to put on a scarf. Um, it, it just, you know, it, and it just it sent me into this like spiral today of just being feeling overwhelmed by just all of the weirdness in the world. Just utterly um, just broken a little bit. <laughs> I have to admit you know, we, we've got this whole thing that's going on with uh, the R Russia and the Ukraine and the United States and just the, it's, you know, um, 
whatever's going on there, I, I don't know. It just seems to me like Vladimir Putin is this guy who just like is nostalgic for the Cold War. And I think he's like, I said this on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. I really think he's one of these guys that proves that like nostalgia is a dangerous thing. Um, we, we, send to, we, we tend to see the world through rose-tinted glasses, but very few of us actually have the power to make it happen, right? To make the world go back to the way that it was when uh, we were young and exciting. And of course, when Vladimir Putin was young and everything was exciting to him, you know, he could murder people and, and with impunity, he wouldn't have to pay for it. So um, that's, that's the world he wants to go back to now. And we're all kind of wrapped up in the middle of that, okay? And it, it just feels like right now, that in the past three years, we can just never get ahead as a human race. You know, first it was like COVID, uh, this thing that now is like we're, we're, we're at the two-year anniversary of COVID, right? Two, two, years, two years ago, I believe it was this week, um, my school closed down. Um, we abandoned the place like it was Chernobyl, and we all just came home uh, for the next like six months. Um, and... That, that's where we were two, two, uh, two years ago. And, you know, very recently, it seemed to me, it seemed to everybody like uh, we had kind of broken the fever a little bit, um, that COVID is receding. You know, there's no longer um, footage on the evening news of like mass graves being dug in New York City and people just being thrown in there and like um, renting out Burger King refrigerated trucks to like store bodies in and all that like that that seems to be like we seem to be getting away from that that's like done um we're taking off our masks in public and all that and um and you know it just seems like we're moving on and then this thing with uh with russia happens um what what they're literally saying could very well be going down in the history books as uh as uh the 1939 of the 21st century right the the the, the time just before the calm just before the storm, and it's not really even that calm. Okay, but yeah, first it, it it was COVID, and now it's war, and we just seem to be right back where we started, in terms of just the world locking down and being ultra paranoid. And you know, primarily uh, the worst hit that Americans feel, of course, is uh, because of gas. You know, gas just seems to be. You know, I really do think that the, the whole thing with gas prices, right, because we, we put this embargo on, on, on Russian oil. Um, so now I guess we're having to rely on oil from other parts of the world that aren't tied to Vladimir Putin. And, you know, gas here in Alabama has never broken $3.90. And right now it's the average gas price in Alabama, where I live, is like $4.39. I went to the gas station today. I was just going to put like $10 in it because I was conditioned that $10 could actually get you through a few days. Now $10 will, um, I mean, that's that's a little over two gallons. No, that that's less than two gallons of gas. It's just a nightmare. You know? Yeah, gas prices are this next thing that's going to keep us inside. I mean, just like COVID did initially. You know, gas prices are going to keep us at home. Um, we had a half day at school this week, and I had several students who uh, uh, 
Now, of course, yeah, if there's students, they don't want to come to school. That's kind of their ultra ultimate priority in life is just to come to school as little as possible. But nevertheless, they, they said um, we would come to school, but, you know, we gas prices are too much. We can't come in <laughs> uh, if it's only a half day and like we're probably not going to be doing anything anyway. And uh, I, I kind of was like, OK, I sort of understand that, actually. You know. Yeah, call me a lenient teacher if you wish, but um, you know I'm I'm at the point where if there's some place that I don't have to absolutely go, I'm not going to go there. You know. And of course, this is a big problem again because layering uh, our proclivity to stay inside because of rising gas prices and not being able to afford just like simply doing going places that we want to go, but going places that we absolutely have to go, like work and things like that. Um, it's further conditioning us to repress that desire that we have as a species to be itinerant, okay? Like, we as humans are not supposed to be stationary. We're, we're, we're not supposed to spend all day in our houses. We're supposed to get out. We're supposed to go places. Um, and for most of us, that means that we have to drive, okay? Like where I live, fortunately, I live in the city, so you can actually get out and walk on sidewalks. But, you know, for most people who live in like a rural state like mine, uh, they have to have a car to get places. Okay. And, you know, not only that, but, uh, you know, think about travel also, the way that this is, again, going to impact travel. Okay. Um, I'm not just talking about like tourism dollars, the way it's going to impact the economy, but I'm talking about the way that, you know, it's a human being's like natural desire to get out of their bubble and see the world and see how the other half lives. Okay. And if we don't do that, if we don't do that, then we just stay home and kind of live in our own dumbness in our own vacuums. We just, we, we learn through things through like, uh, you know, like television and, uh, and the internet, and we never get outside of our comfort zones. And, and this hurts us as a species. So we're going on now more than two years of being essentially mandated to stay inside and only go places when we have to, right? And that's, that's just a huge problem. You know, we want to move around, yet we're at this weird time in history where we're being told that it's kind of impossible to do that. So that's really been bogging me down. That this week in the, in the snow and the weather have really been frustrating. My uh, attempts at sanity. Right, we're all just people. We're all just trying to live our lives here. Just trying to, like, go to work and just enjoy being alive. And yet, it just feels like the powerful people in the world. You know, like the Putins and the Zelenskys and the, uh, the Bidens and the Macrons and the Boris Johnsons of the world. You know, they're all just, like, in this, um... 
geopolitical pissing contest and we're in the toilet. So you know what 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 can people like me do? People like me and you do when uh, you know we're just working. We're just guys. We're just people trying to get through our lives and with minimal drama, being able to make a little bit of money to go out there and 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 learn and see the world for ourselves. I don't know. We we have to. You know, it's like I've been trying to fight my position of being like made to be a simpleton <laughs> you know i just feel like there, there's like this big picture out there in the world um of people and uh they're all they're all powerful and they they kind of work behind closed doors it's very easy to buy into conspiracy theories I try not to i don't want to i think i'm a very rational person but in times like these it's it's hard to believe that um there are not like a, a bunch of guys in the back of a grocery store just making decisions for us and uh, smoking cigars and drinking whiskey and all that and just, you know, making these decisions without us. And, you know, meanwhile, we're all sitting here playing tiddlywinks. <laughs> you know? So we, we do our best uh, to fight this idea of being a simpleton and trying to be in the know. And I was thinking about this today. I was watching HBO just uh, released this, um, what is it, this uh, two-part documentary on the uh, on the controversy that, that, that happened last year with uh, uh, with GameStop, if you uh, remember that. This, uh, was this documentary called Gaming Wall Street. And, um, you know, essentially about all these retail investors. Um, retail investors are, are just small investors like you and me. Um, we might have like $1,000 a year to uh, throw at the stock market. Maybe we use like one of these free brokerage apps like uh, Weeble or Robinhood. We put it on there and we just buy a little bit of stock and hope that, uh, you know, we, we see the stock rise and fall. We think we're getting like the latest up-to-date information but of course, it turns out that uh, we're not. We're getting like third-rate information, okay? Um, you know, we're all just—I um, don't know. There's there's some crude terms, but you know, there there's like this one uh, fraternity ritual. Uh, no, I won't say that. Um, you know, but like essentially, we're all kind of standing around in a circle. No, I can't say that either. How can I say this in like a clean way? We're all just getting the screws put to us, okay? We're all just getting the screws put to us. And, and it's basically like the less money that you, that you seem to have, the more screws that you have put to you, okay? And uh, so for a lot of retail investors, they're at the very, very bottom tier of the stock market feeding chain. And at the very top are the apex predators or like the, the, the hedge funds and the big Wall Street banks and things like that. And they all get the information first, and then we sort of get their spoils, Okay. And uh, or, or whatever's left over. And so 
uh, the idea with this like gaming Wall Street uh, documentary, what it says is like there are all these guys who were essentially um, buying huge amounts of shares and uh, just po- pooling together like all of their money, all of these small retail investors to uh, buy shares in GameStop and AMC theaters so that the the stock would go up and all of these hedge fund short sellers would lose all this money. And it was like the, the one of the first times in, in American history where basically all of these Davids um, went up against this one Goliath and actually won for a very short time. Because what happened was is that uh, when the funds started to get wise, they prevented retail investors from continuing to buy shares in GameStop and AMC Theater and these other small companies that were, or these other big companies that were, uh, that were heading toward uh, crashes. And so this was like hardcore evidence. Like we actually now have it on paper that there are forces conspiring against the little guy. Okay. And that's one of the reasons why it was such a controversy. I remember this whole thing happening last year. I just don't really remember what the specifics of it were. And so, um, you know, this kind of put it into perspective for me. Okay. So, yeah, we're, we're all just kind of trying to um, just live our lives and get by. And, again, if there's anything that we've learned from the last two years, it's the fact that, like, um, the people at the top of the ladder, the apex predators, are not even hiding it anymore that they're hunting us, right? They're basically, it's like, we're in the middle of a gigantic open field, and so are they. They see us, and uh, then they throw a bunch of glue at us. And we just stay in place while we get gobbled up. I don't know. Um, I, you know, I'm I'm so sorry that I'm really seem to be pissed off tonight. I'm I'm just in a in a weird mood uh, today. You know. Well, you're like, oh man, Mike Booty, that Midnight Citizen, you know, he's getting, he's getting hard edged. He's like uh, George Carlin in the '90s or uh, Lenny Bruce. No, I'm not like that, but uh, you know. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, I, I've been, I've been just trying to kind of keep my mind active lately, not fall into this like uh, sense of just letting the world wash over me. I feel like that's what I did for like the first 30 years of my life, and. While I still very much value being, I guess what I would call a practicing non-participant. <laughs> I just, I, I really don't participate in almost anything that uh, that everybody else seems to find so enjoyable. It just, it, it's, it's a lot of times I just get, uh, I'm always very suspicious of like the latest trends and things like that. And uh, I feel like there are a lot more people like me out there than there are, you know, I, I guess we're like a, we're a silent majority, I suppose. Um, but I, I just always try to be a little suspicious of everything. And But I think there is still a way to be in, uh, in the know and uh, just not be, you know, you can be suspicious and skeptical, but, uh, you know, don't just be passive, you know. Um, so I, I don't know. Um, 
yeah, you, you got to do things to keep uh, keep your mind up. And one of the things that I've always done that's like exercised my mind and just made me sharp as I've been reading. Um, so lately, I, I've really been wanting to kind of read challenging stuff. And and how how else like what else is more challenging out there than uh, Thomas Pynchon? You know, uh, Thomas Pynchon. I've been reading a uh, Bleeding Edge. Bleeding Edge. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't know who Thomas Pynchon is, um, you know, he's like this notoriously, um, he's this notoriously reclusive author, um, who's been writing books since like the early 1960s. And as far as we know, he's still alive. I believe he's still alive. Uh, but, um, I think it would be news if he died, but, uh, yeah, the reason we don't know this is because nobody's ever really seen him. Um, there's, there hasn't been any, have never been any interviews of uh, with him. Uh, there's never been any footage of him that we know of. Um, like he may be in like a baseball game or something like that, and and the camera may be like panning through the stands, but we mostly have really no idea what he looks like um, because he's just very standoffish. He prefers to uh, write his books and uh, publish them. And of course, it's led to like a lot of theories that Thomas Pynchon is not a real person, that it's actually like a bunch of different authors writing under his name, kind of like, um, you know, the people who wrote the Hardy Boys or Nancy Drew, you know, Hardy Boys was always published under Franklin W. Dixon, uh, who by my count should be about 120 years old by now. But uh, I wonder if Thomas Pynchon ever wrote any Hardy Boys books. I don't know. But uh, anyway. Yeah, but uh, the the there's like two photos that exist of uh of Thomas Pynchon, uh, and they're both from like the 1950s. Like that's the most famous one. It's like a yearbook photo, or something from when he was in high school or college, and he's got like this uh, you know, hair that looks like I don't know like an interstate on ramp, and he's got these giant buck teeth, and you know he doesn't really look. I wouldn't say that he looks like um a little rascal, um because he's he's like a little too old for that but um he looks like i don't know maybe like the eddie haskell type you know the uh the rambunctious teenager who might like buy beer for the little rascals maybe i don't know i know that i'm like mixing up my pop culture metaphors but um but yeah there he is thomas pynchon so thomas pynchon uh, of course his most famous novel is probably um gravity's rainbow that he wrote in uh 1974, which is like a notoriously um, difficult novel, and I've started it several times. I think the fat. Let me see where the bookmark is in this book. So, yeah, Gravity's Rainbow, right here. Uh, I'm on page 313. I've been there for about the last six years. <laughs> Gravity's Rainbow. And look at this. I actually found some old podcast notes in here from uh, from years ago. Look at that. Yeah. So, yeah, Gravity's Rainbow is like his most famous work and uh, deals with a lot of the themes that he's always explored in his books going all the way up until his most recent novel, uh, Bleeding Edge, which was published in 2013. And that's the one that I'm reading right now. But Thomas Pynchon is like, I guess what you would classify as a postmodern author. You know, he's very much interested in the relationship of uh, science and technology to like the will of the human spirit um, in the years following World War II. And um, 
there's a lot of like the way that like the human body is kind of linked to the military industrial complex. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, the best way I can kind of explain that is that the, the beginning premise of gravity's rainbow, like gravity's rainbow has like a lot of premises, premise. I don't know. But the main idea though, is that there's this character in the book named Tyrone Slothrop, uh, who, um, is in London during World War II, you know, like when London is getting pummeled uh, by V-2 bombs all the time um, being launched, thrown to them from Germany. And essentially every time this character, Tyrone Slothrop, has like an orgasm, um, it actually corresponds to a place on the map where a V-2 rocket has fallen. So there's this like weird relationship that he explores between... Um, you know, the functions of the human body and the functions of, uh, of war and, you know, people who make weapons and things like that. So <laughs> it's hard to explain, but everything with Thomas Pynchon is hard to explain. I'm not even sure he can explain it. Um, he's notoriously difficult, although some of his books are easier to read than others. And I think especially in like the, the um, 21st century, you know, he's written, I believe, three books in, in the 21st century that are all actually pretty enjoyable and easy to understand. Um, Against the Day came out in 2006, um, which is his, I believe it's his longest novel, uh, about 1,100 pages. But I was able to finish it, so it must not be that complicated. Um, and then he followed that up with Inherent Vice in 2009, which, of course, they made the, uh, the film out of uh, um, by Paul Thomas Anderson. Uh, which is about a detective in like the 1970s. And then, of course, Bleeding Edge, which is also about essentially like a detective in the year 2000, right before the, right after the dot com bubble burst and 9 11, in between 9 11 before. So um, I've held off on reading Ble Bleeding Edge for like the longest time because I just, as somebody who did live through 9 11, I just, you know, and apparently from reading the book jacket, a lot of the book has to do with 9-11. Um, even though I know as a Thomas Pynchon reader, and I feel like I'm kind of a seasoned Pynchon reader by now, having read several of his books um, to completion, um, I know that whatever it says on the dust jacket is not what the book is about at all. <laughs> um, so they're very misleading uh, summaries. But, you know, nevertheless, having lived through 9-11, I just, uh, I really try to, I don't want anything to really do with it. Um, it it's just, um, I grew up, you know, I was in college when that happened. Uh, for like a year, all I did was like watch the news and I saw footage of the towers falling over and over again. And I just, I did not want to see it. And I'm, I'm, I became very weary and tired of the conspiracy theories that surrounded 9-11. Uh, I knew something was going on with it, but I didn't really want to indulge. It seems like there was no... There was no like happy medium with 9-11 either, either you just kind of, you know, in the public space, you either went with went with the, the simplest explanation that Osama bin Laden and Al Qaeda uh, had a bunch of people come over here and fly planes into buildings. Right. Um, or you were on the other side, which is like it was a giant government cover up. It was an inside job. And there was no like happy medium just to explore kind of what like what what really happened. And so I just got incredibly burnt out on that in the 10 years or so after 9-11. So Bleeding Edge comes out in 2013. I really don't want anything to do with it. But, you know, I, I don't know, just in the current state that we're in, you know, for like the last two years, I just, um, um, 
I really wanted to uh, read something that was like attempting to make sense um, of um, the weird, complicated world that we live in, and I wanted Thomas Pynchon to kind of explain it to me. <laughs> and so I, I started reading Bleeding Edge, and uh, I've been enjoying it so far. You know, I'm not really going to give a summary here because I'm only like 150 pages into it, but, um, you know. But it, it's a good book, though. It's It's got, you know, if you're a Pynchon reader and you've never read Bleeding Edge before, it's incredibly accessible. It's like Inherent Vice. Um, it's really, the plot is pretty easy to follow, more or less. It's got a lot of weird, um, you know, uh, digressions in it the way that you expect from Pynchon. Um, some of the things that he's, like, most famous for are, are alive and well in, in the book. Like, he's got, you know, there's always um, these weird acronyms um that organizations use um like things like like in in his first novel uh the crying of lot 49 uh there's this organization called waste w-a-s-t-e uh and it stands for we await silent terrestrial's empire so that's a book about you know conspiracies in like the 1960s in in california and, you know, there's always characters uh, in his books chasing around a conspiracy theories, kind of finding weird, dark underground worlds and organizations. Um, and Bleeding Edge has like a lot of them. There's uh, the, the central character, this woman named Maxine Turnow, is like a fraud investigator, uh, which very much like um, uh, Doc Sportello in Inherent Vice. You know, he's a guy who's she's a lady who's like going around um, New York City in the late 90s um trying to figure out uh the darker purposes of like this uh, dot-com billionaires company and so he's like the only person who's managed to actually keep his company afloat among a lot of bust so she's like what's up with that and so she meets a lot of different weird characters and weird organizations uh there's this one organization called despair d-e-s-p-a-i-r which stands for, you know, Disgruntled Employer Simulation Program for Audit, Information, and Review. And it's all about, you know, these people who are, it's like this organization of just a disgruntled employees. So, you know, kind of like the uh, anti-work people on, on Reddit, you know. And again, Strange Organizations, there's this whole chapter that talks about Ambopedia, which uh, isn't an acronym, but it, it you know, it's this uh, yearly conference of people who get together on a cruise ship um, and they all have borderline personality disorder, you know, and they sail to the middle of the ocean and little, literally go, you know, between they, they park the, um, the cruise ship on the borders between countries. They listen to Madonna's borderline and they talk about their problems. So, you know, and it's like, that's, that's pension for you. It's like, you know, there's, there's a whole lot of weirdness that's organized around very humorous ideas. Um, and you can almost buy the fact that they actually take place. They actually do exist in the real world. And uh, very often, uh, Thomas Pynchon does mix in fake organizations with real ones, right? Like he'll mention waste and the CIA in the same sentence. And, and you know, you have to figure out which one sounds more legitimate. So, <laughs> so I've been reading, um, yeah, Bleeding Edge this week, right? Um. You know, and I, I think like one of the reasons that I love to read Pynchon when I'm just feeling stressed out about the world again is because, you know, we do have this tendency when we just feel like we're trying to get by in this world and there's 
people out there, like forces that seem to be conspiring against us. Like not you individually, but just people like you, all the millions of people like you who are just trying to wake up in the morning and like go to work and pay taxes, you know, and just, um, and just live their lives and travel occasionally. Okay. And yeah, like it's so easy sometimes to fall into this trap of just being a conspiracy theorist and just really looking for darker purposes and trying to explain them. And I think one of the things that Pynchon is so good at is he's good at identifying the fact that, you know, conspiracies are, their theories are like a self-fulfilling prophecy um, of just, you know, us. We can't explain like the dark side of things and we just in, end up theorizing over what the dark side is and sometimes we end up actually making that happen if that makes any sense at all you know but yeah like reading pension will just kind of give you this idea there there's like definitely a backlash that you get um when you try to keep your mind awake and you know you you try to just make sense of the world by doing research and essentially what you're trying to do is you're trying to defeat the Dunning-Kruger curve you know, and uh, this has been talked a lot, uh, talked about a lot. Um, the 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 Dunning Kruger you know effect uh, is essentially you know this idea that uh, the more you know, the more you just like know that you don't know, right? Um, it's very easy to just see two things, put them together, and assume that it's a conspiracy. Okay. And at the very, very low end of this is like the valley of despair. This is like when you actually open up a book <laughs> or you take a trip and, uh, you know, you, you just have the sudden drop that like things that you always thought about were wrong. You know, it's like that episode of King of the Hill where uh, Dale Gribble, you know, the conspiracy theorist next door actually takes a trip down to. Dealey Plaza um, in in Dallas, Texas, and he finds out uh, that he was wrong about the Kennedy assassination. And so he falls into this like valley of despair. Um, he's like, everything I've thought about this whole time is 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 wrong. And so, you know, we have that when we when we try to like actually research and try to have this like war against just taking what's given to us, taking the information that's given to us and just being totally happy about it. We do fall into this valley of despair and we, we have to, that's the backlash and we have to kind of pull ourselves out of it. Right. Um, just get ourselves out of it. So. You know, and you can always tell uh, when people are in this valley of despair. Okay? These are the people, like, when you're in conversation with them, they're not talking over you. They're listening. Sometimes they've even got their, like, heads in their hands. You know, just once you start, you know, seeing what's out there, what, what's out there and how complicated the world is, you do start listening better. You're more aware. 
and just accept that and and just try to like maintain your sense of humor I guess I don't know
And welcome back to the show. Hope you enjoyed that little musical interlude there. That was a long time to be talking just now. Thought I was just trying to get back to basics here. That was a lot, man. Yeah, welcome back into the studio. Uh, yeah, the music break just now. We had some good music there. Um... We started off with a song called Hipster Girls by the Spinwires, which is all about um, this guy who doesn't date hipster girls, but he seems to be attracted to them anyway. As we all are. And then a nice instrumental number. Kind of uh, 60s, 70s jazz stuff called That's a Beat by the band Ketza. And you can find uh, both of those songs on the Free Music Archive, uh, courtesy of WFMU out of New Jersey. And I'm actually doing something uh, new this week. I, I seem to be doing thing new things every single week. Uh, but this week, I'm actually making the entire uh, mix uh, of this episode of The Midnight Citizen available uh, on my playlist over at the Free Music Archive. I just actually discovered that you can make... Uh, mixes and playlists over there and share them with people. So uh, I am going to share that with you, not just the uh, two songs from the musical break uh, just now, but also all the backing music 
you could go there and hear the amazing free music on the show without the interruptions of my voice. I want to remind you that you can uh, go find the show. Check me out if you don't know at mikebooty.com slash the Midnight Citizen. That's my website. Um, you can also find a complete live stream of the show, actual video of the show, of me doing the show, if that's your thing, over at youtube.com slash mikebooty. And, uh, yeah, you'll actually have the benefit of, uh, during the musical breaks, uh, seeing the segment of the show that I introduced a couple of weeks back uh, called Night Cam. Yeah, like every uh, time I kind of cut away and take a break, you know, I will show you um, a place, a random place on the globe as it is happening right now. And uh, that's what Night Cam is. Uh, this week, I took you to Leavenworth, Washington. Nice little wintry town there in uh, Washington State. Uh, right in the foothills of the mountains. Very nice little wintry scene there. People walking around. Little piggies living their piggy lives. Oh, look at that. Walking dogs. Sitting and chilling next to fire pits. Got to be cold there. You know, so, yeah, that is night cam. Because we're all on this earth together. We might as well share it on the Midnight Citizen Show. talk for a second uh this week uh tonight about a show i a, a movie i saw this week i haven't seen it in a while um you know how just like s sometimes you'll just kind of be like you know i don't know taking a shower driving down the road and just like uh you'll think of a movie that you just like haven't you know hasn't been anywhere in your memory at least not in the front of it it's been lurking somewhere in the uh subconscious hindbrain just waiting to come out something just reminds you of it and this week i thought about this movie called to live and die in la all right uh this movie from uh, 1985 directed by william friedkin the uh, director of the french connection which is probably in my top five favorite movies of all time love that movie uh, he also directed the exorcist and sorcerer and uh, kind of had a reputation in the 1970s for just being like a wild man director. Uh, one of these guys who just like sacrifices uh, relationships and uh, safety uh, in order to get that perfect shot, right? I think like most notoriously uh, on The Exorcist, he actually um, crippled Ellen Bernstein, Burstyn when she uh, did, a, did a stunt. Um, in the room there of Reagan when she was possessed by the devil. So yeah, he's always uh, had this uh, reputation, and, and I think it's because of the movie Sorcerer. 
a movie that went wildly over budget and uh, failed at the box office. Of course, not because it wasn't a good movie. I think it's a great movie. You know, but because it opened the week after Star Wars in 1977, pretty much tanked his career. So he finds himself in the 1980s unable to get any kind of studio to finance a film of his um, anywhere on the globe except in Los Angeles. So, you know, he finds this book called To Live and Die in L.A., which is about, um, you know, it's a, the, the main character is like a, a Secret Service agent. Uh, played by William Peterson, who's on the uh, who's on the hunt for this uh, murderous counterfeiter, played by Willem Dafoe, and uh, it's uh, yeah, it's it's a, just a fantastic film. And really, the way that I would like describe it uh, to anyone um, is probably like it's like if you took the French Connection and Repo Man and like put them into a blender, that's kind of what you would get. Maybe with like a little bit of in the line of fire, you know, because of the Secret Service angle. <laughs> you know. So, uh, yeah, and I think specifically I say Repo Man because it, it's shot by uh, Robbie Mueller, who also was the director of photography for Repo Man. And uh, pretty much any movie worth watching that's set in Los Angeles, uh, California. Um, but yeah, this, this is just one incredible movie. It's just, uh, to me, like one of these films, it's like, on another level, um, just in terms of like how gritty it is, how cynical it is, how like beautifully shot it is. Uh, there's a car chase that's like in the center of it, kind of the same way there was in the French connection. And, um, it's just like the way car chases should be shot, you know, like there's always like that, that every, I think action director always wants to do that one great car chase. And obviously there's a lot of movies that center around car chases, uh, you know, like those Fast and the Furious movies. There was that movie Baby Driver that came out a few years ago that's got a lot of car chases in it. Um, but I think, like, just one thing I that drives me crazy about, like, those movies is that they're so flashy and stylized, and they make it look fun. And I think the thing about the way that uh, To Live and Die in L.A., the car chase in that film is, is that, it, like, it doesn't look fun at all. It looks, like, nauseating. But it's also, like, super... Uh, uh, it's just it, it it's also like super um, interesting to just like see the way that cars would actually behave in a chase, not stylized and, you know, not doing like these balletic, you know, uh, dances around like semi trucks and things like that. <laughs> you know, like there's there's dirt that's going up all over the place. There's like, you know, rims that are blowing out. There's like windshields that are uh, that are cracking. Um, there's a guy in the, in the, in the movie and to live and die in LA who just like gets totally nauseous sitting in the back seat. There as his partner is driving over these like railroad tracks and you could just see like the, just the dread on his face, you know, that this could lead to his death and he's sick about it. Right. Uh, but absolutely fantastic movie. And I, I came home and I wanted to like find it. I wanted to watch it. Um, but this is one of those movies you cannot find anywhere. Um, because apparently it was a big flop when it came out. But since then, it's been like a huge cult film. You can go on YouTube. There's like all of these people reviewing the movie. Um, but you cannot find it anywhere um, to watch online. Like we, we've been conditioned now. You're, you should be able to stream these films, right? Where are they? Well, you can't find them. Not on any streaming service. And you can go onto eBay and you can get a copy uh, from the Shout Factory, a copy that like went out of print a few years ago. You can get that for like $150. 
I mean, you can still get the movie, but it's just a lot of money. It's a lot of dough that I can't shell out right now for a film. But uh, but I will say, you know, there are ways to watch it online. Just look it up in, in your typical way that you want to watch a movie and you don't want to pay for it. Yeah, there's like a lot of uh, inappropriate ads that come in. And, you know, I was watching it last night. My wife walked in at some point, you know, because I my brother-in-law called and she he wanted to talk to me and. You know, I went to pause the movie, and of course, about about a million different naked anime characters popped up. So, um, you know, I had to pause the film, talk to my brother-in-law, and then I had to explain to my wife um, that that's not why the door was closed. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, absolutely fantastic movie to live and die in L.A. Check it out. Another another thing about that film, by the way, is that another thing that makes it great. It's got a complete soundtrack composed and performed by Wang Chung, the British New Wave band, um, and uh, and it's fantastic. It's it's just absolutely like you could go on, you could stream that thing on Spotify. And I highly encourage you do. Like, I've been driving around delivering food this week in my car, like listening to the soundtrack to to live and die in L.A. And it just it it has like the certain feeling that it really does make you feel like you're driving around. You're a character in that movie, even though, you know, you're driving around Birmingham, Alabama, delivering, um, you know, sushi to people. <laughs> but it's just a, a perfectly immersive soundtrack, you know, makes you think of the film when you listen to it. Yeah. And, and oddly enough, you know, like uh, Dance Hall Days is not on that soundtrack, even though they play it in the movie at a strip club. One of the characters goes to a strip club and a girl is dancing to Dance Hall Days. <laughs> um, it's not in that. But yeah, Wang Chung, uh, if you're not familiar, I think they're, like, their most familiar, their most uh, popular song is probably uh, Everybody Have Fun Tonight, which actually has the name of their band in it. You know, Everybody Have Fun Tonight, Everybody Wang Chung Tonight. <laughs> I was listening to that song. It came up on my Spotify this week in the mix for uh, To Live and Die in L.A. Uh, that song is not in the movie. It would be weird if it was, but it's not in the movie. Um, yeah, th- that's one of those songs that just always seems a little creepy to me in a way. Like, everybody have fun tonight. because I think it's just because of the weird low-res tone that they sing that song in. Um, they don't really sound like they're having a fun time when they're singing that song. You know, everybody have fun tonight. You know, they, they just don't really sound very excited. And so there seems to be like this ironic element at play. And uh, I don't know if there's a music video for that song. Um, you know, I'm not going to look it up here because I don't want to get struck with copyright or anything. But um, but yeah, at, at one point, there's there's this uh, point near the end of that song where it's a mix of people saying everybody have, you know, everybody. And it's like everybody, have, you know, and it's going over and over again. It sounds like there's just a bunch of people who are sort of trapped in like this vortex, maybe leading down to like hell or something. Uh, just uh, saying, saying it in the most ironic way possible. And in the middle of all that, there's literally a guy who comes on, uh, who in the background, it's very faint. You really have to listen for it, but it's at about like the 
four minute and 54 second mark of the song, he says, tell me what a Wang Chung is. Okay. And so I was like listening to that. And I was like, it, it was building up this image in my mind. You know how songs, uh, you know, give you certain images. You have this image of this guy all of a sudden who's just like falling again through this like long vortex, this pit leading to a very dark place. And he's just like, somebody just tell me what a Wang Chung is. He just wants to know something, but he knows that it has something to do with his fate. <laughs> tell me what a Wang Chung is. Tell me what a Wang Chung is. Anyway. Yeah, that song Dance Hall Days, though. Oh, my God. I got the effects on. <laughs> that song Dance Hall Days. <laughs> All right. So take talk about that for just a second. So, like, that's a song, I think, with one of the most misunderstood uh, song lyrics of all time. Um, and you probably know which one I'm talking about. It, it's, it's a song... Once again, it's a very creepy song from Wang Chung about uh, something that you're doing to um, your lady in the dance hall, right? Take your lady by the hills, right? Make her, uh, you know, take a high handstand. I don't know. <laughs> you know, there's, there's, uh, it's got this idea that, like, you know, it's a guy who is, like, nostalgically looking back at the dance hall days, okay? And talking about just certain things that they used to do and uh, how they used to have fun. I'll look up the lyrics. I'm terrible with lyrics. And I think this uh, story kind of proves it. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the lyrics are take your baby by the hand and make her do a high handstand. Take your baby by the heel and do the next thing that you feel. So it's got this like kind of eerie uh, vibe to it. Where it's like you're doing things that like your baby has no control over. Yeah, but then it's talking about like, uh, you know, things like we were so in phase in our dance hall days. We were cool on craze. Okay, so like the way that they sing this makes it sound like we were cool on Christ. Right. I've always thought and I feel like there are other people like me out there. Uh, who think this is the same way because I've, I know I've talked to people about it before. Okay. Yeah, we were cool on Christ. And it's amazing how certain misunderstood song lyrics can make you have this completely different image of what the, the song is trying to evoke, this mental image that the song is trying to get you to think about. So, like, when I think about this song, Dance Hall Days, I sort of think about, like, just how the social aspect of being young, for me personally, uh, was tied up in sort of going to church, right? So it's like you you had crushes on these girls, but they were all like at church. And so like you were cool on Christ together, right? In the dance hall days, right? In the double wide trailer behind the church where you used to have your big youth group meetings. I don't know. 
<laughs> you know. So yeah, it's always been uh, just this this weird thing about uh, being uh, cool on Christ, but I don't think that's what Wayne Chung is trying to get you to think about there. Uh, you know, not 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 at all. Here on the show, yeah. Just getting back to just how weird times have been lately, and just this uh, mental effect that it can have on you. I've been experiencing a lot lately of what I would call time displacement. I'm sure there's a term for this because it is kind of a phenomenon that I think does happen, not just to my brain. I don't think I'm special, but it's been happening a lot lately. Maybe you can tell me what it actually like. What what is the clinical term for this? Okay, so what time displacement is for me is when you like travel to different places in the town where you've lived all of your life. And you expect things to be there. And then when you go there, you suddenly realize that not only are they not there, but they haven't been in years. And you're kind of like, that's time displacement. Okay. It's like, you know, in your mind that it's 2022. But when you go places, you expect them to be like 2002 or something like that. Maybe not that long ago. I don't know how far it goes back. But yeah, I, I've been experiencing a lot of time displacement lately, and I think this happens because I've been in my head so much. You know, I've been just like thinking about the ramifications of living in, through the last two years. I've been reading Thomas Pynchon um working on working on my podcast which has honestly taken like a lot of a lot of mental um gymnastics to to do that right i, I just like my brain is kind of overloaded because i'm so invested in this creative project called the midnight citizen show and i'm also working at the same time so i have this tendency like to leave my body um sometimes and just go completely into my 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 mind and but I'm still going around places, so you know I have this um, have this real tendency to displace where I actually am in the timeline. You know, just thinking a lot about misunderstood song lyrics and and all that. I don't know. Yeah, no, I'll I'll give you an example. Okay, to show you what I mean. So, um. Last week, you know, I, I went to uh, the Chevron, as, as I said earlier, down to the down to the gas station on the corner. 
Um, I really wanted an ice cream. It was actually kind of a hot day. And I remembered that the Chevron has a cooler there. You know, one of those like long coolers that you can reach in. You can get yourself like a, a Snickers ice cream bar or something like that. I just really wanted like some sugar, some cold sugar. And I went in there and the cooler wasn't there. And I suddenly remembered like, man, the last time I think I actually had anything out of that cooler was probably maybe 2016. So again, I went in there uh, thinking that something was there, but it hadn't been in years because I hadn't had any reason or method to go in there and get that on a constant basis in probably about five or six years. So that that right there, that's that's time displacement. That's kind of what I think I'm thinking about. And you know, a couple days later, um, I I'm taking the day off work. And um, I'm out and about, you know, I'm just kind of taking a day for myself and I'm out and about and I'm thinking, you know, I could really use a sandwich right now. And I'm going down the road and I'm thinking, you know what, what place has really good sandwiches? There's this uh, Jersey Mike's um, and they sell Subway sandwiches. Okay. Um, really good down there right next to the cigar shop. And so I get in the car and I go all the way down 280. Like, you know, this is about a 30 minute drive in, in traffic to get to where I can have a sandwich. And the whole way, you know, down the interstate or down, down the highway, you know, I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about all these different things, you know, what I'm going to talk about on the show that week, uh, Thomas Pynchon books, um, you know, this, the dance hall days, cool on Christ. I'm, I'm just, I'm totally in my head. And I also like, my mind starts to wander back to like the day where, you know, I used to have like, um, there was one Jewish kid that like went to my elementary school. Um, <laughs> and he used to like give me hell for being in the boy Scouts. And, you know, when I graduated from Cub Scout to boy Scout, I remember one time he, he called it a Protestant bar mitzvah. And so I'm thinking about that also, I'm not thinking about the actual task of getting a sandwich. I just know that that's kind of my destination. And so I get down there to Jersey Mike's and I find out it's no longer Jersey Mike's. And I knew that. It's been a Jewish delicatessen for something like, you know, like nine or ten years. I haven't been to that Jersey Mike's in years. Like that's that's time displacement. That's that's what I'm talking about. You know, it was just happening so much. So, you know, I get myself a latka. And um, a couple of days later, I, I'm, I'm going to, uh, I need like a Band-Aid. So I'm, this is true. I you know, <laughs> need a Band-Aid. Uh, so, you know, I'm going down to. Uh, this drugstore uh, down uh, the street from my parents' house. And lo and behold, of course, it's not a drugstore anymore. It's like a, it's a dollar store. And indeed, it hasn't been, I suddenly remember it hasn't been a drugstore in something like 15 years. And I feel like I'm going further, further back in time with my time displacement. 
But I get to this place, this uh, this dollar store, and I notice in the back of the store there's like this little like series of like buttons. It's like a panel, like an elevator panel full of buttons. Next to the buttons are you know numbers that look like you know they're four digit numbers that look like they correspond to years. I notice on there is like two thousand four. 1999, 1997, 1995, and that's where they stop. And I realized that, you know, 1995, if this is actually a year and I press this button and it does what I think it's going to do, it'll take me back to the very first year that I remember going into this drugstore when it was a Harco Drugs. And that's the... Uh, that's when my sister worked there. That was her first job working at Harco Drugs. And so, you know, like I put on a glove that's in my pocket because I'm very hesitant to, you know, touch buttons um, in these days of COVID. And uh, put on the glove and I, I push the button and, you know, lo and behold, like the entire world starts to transform around me and it becomes a drugstore. And I look around me, and uh, sure enough, this has got to be 1995. There's, like, calendars on the wall and all that. The, uh, you know, that certain products are designed the way that I remember them being when I was a kid. And I walk around, and I'm suddenly just finding that I'm in, um, I, I'm not just, like, feeling time displaced. I'm actually time displaced, you know. And uh, I walk outside, and the world does not look like a world should, you know, because that's the weird thing about time displacement is that you only remember, you know, you can only actually manifest things the way that you remember them. So certain things are kind of not where they, they're supposed to be. But I nevertheless, I do look down and uh, down the sidewalk is the movie gallery, you know, and I go in there uh, for a minute. And it's like exactly like I remember. I'm like, you know, maybe I'll go in here and like rent rent a movie, like rent Cliffhanger or something like that, and um, maybe rent to, to Live and Die in L.A., you know. But you can't even find that movie in 1995 video stores. Um, so <laughs> I decide to leave the video store because I, I realize that I don't have a VCR at home. And even if I do have one uh, at home, it probably isn't working anymore. You know, but yeah, the, the weird thing is, is like when you step outside, just the entire world that you remember in 1995 is there. Um, not necessarily just in places where they should be. As a matter of fact, I, I, I went on vacation in the summer of 1995 um, to San Francisco, California. And, you know, indeed, I looked out on the horizon and I could sure enough, I could see uh, the peaks of the Golden Gate Bridge, you know just over the peaks of Oak Mountain. So it's like somehow I could actually, you know, if I walked forward, I could actually walk across the entire country in just a few minutes. So but I decided to maybe try that later. What I did decide to do, though, is I wanted to go and check out my old middle school because I was in middle school in 1995. And, uh, of course, in reality, um, it would probably take me about an hour to walk along the busy highway to Oak Mountain Middle School from where I was uh, there at the movie gallery in the Harco drugstore. Um, but the way, again, my memory is, you know, every time I went to Oak Mountain Middle School in those days, I would be on the bus and I would be in my own world and 
not really paying attention to what was outside. So, you know, the way that my memories were, they kind of fused the world together. And so it really only took me about three minutes to walk to Oak Mountain Middle School. You know, I just walked past the things, the, like the key destinations and the, uh, you know, the geographical um, points of interest. And so I, uh, there I was, and I walked into Oak Mountain Middle School, and I was walking down the hall, and I was suddenly noticing that, like, things were really kind of screwed up. It was sort of like, um, I don't know, like a scrambled channel. There were only, like, little bits and pieces of uh, Oak Mountain Middle School that were kind of put together. And it was really disconcerting and, and confusing. I was trying to get, I was kind of getting a headache, and I just was really trying to make sense of the world, and then... I started thinking about, you know, other other things that weren't necessarily related to the way that my world was in 1995. And suddenly things were starting to correct themselves very oddly, okay? Um, so the school did not look probably exactly as it was in 1995, but it looked the way that I remembered it. And I walked around... And uh, there were, you know, it was kind of like on the Photoshop, you know, there's like the clone stamp tool. It's like somebody just took a clone stamp and just was kind of making copies of like little bits and pieces that I actually remembered. And I was walking down the hall, you know, and I, I, I heard a bunch of uh, voices from one room. And I was walking down this empty hall, and it seemed to me like it was probably after school hours because the halls were relatively empty, as were the classrooms. But as I said, there was this one classroom, and voices were coming out of it. And they were young voices, and they were female voices. And I walked into this room, and I suddenly noticed that it was a room that was populated by all the girls that I had crushes on in middle school, right? And they were all just, like, hanging around and talking and I, I couldn't really figure out what they were talking about the, the, the their, their voices were just like kind of all blending together um but I looked on the board and on the chalkboard written in big capital letters uh was the word scrunchy right and then under that were words written out the first letters of which actually spelled out the word scrunchy so oh it was an acronym and it turned out that scrunchy stood for student collaborative rights, undermining neoconservative hedonistic yes men. And suddenly that's the moment where I was like, oh shit. My memories are actually melding with the current state of my discombobulated mind. Suddenly I've wandered into a like a memory that's actually melted like cheese to a sandwich to a piece of toast with a Thomas Pynchon novel. So I'm in this conspiratorial uh, group of girls that I had crushes on in middle school. And what they're doing is they're talking all about the hottest conspiracy theories of the day. And they're going around and talking, and, and they seem to be arguing right now about how the Oklahoma City bombing was like an orchestrated attempt by various federal agencies uh, to mask gross incompetence um, at Ruby Ridge and Waco. And so they're all really angry about that. 
and I try to get an, a word in edgewise, and I kind of realize they're not really listening to me. Again, that's a memory that I have from uh, <laughs> from middle school is not you know being paid the slightest mind by by these girls. <laughs> but who does notice me is my Jewish friend Job. Job, who's a guy who's like always having the screws put to him, comes up exactly the way that I remember him. The ironic thing is, though, I don't remember that I went to middle school with Job. I, I remember that he went, I believe, to another school that probably had more Jewish students there um, in middle school. But, you know, he looked the way that I remember him looking in the fifth grade. So that was that. And he comes up and starts ragging me about my Cub Scout graduation ceremony, calling it a Protestant bar mitzvah. Ha ha ha. And we leave the room and we're walking down the hall there. And there's a bunch of music that seems to be coming from the gym. You know. And we walk down to the gym and we suddenly just wander into um, what appears to be a dance. And everybody's kind of uh, dancing around and and uh, but it seems to be segregated, not with like boys and girls and not black and white or anything, but they seem to be segregated uh, based on everyone's understanding of like song lyrics. So like right now, the song Blinded by the Light is playing uh, the Bruce Springsteen version and they're all dancing around. And on one end of the gym is the band that thinks that it's. Uh, rolled up like a douche, another runner in the night. And on the other end of the band, uh, the dance floor is a bunch of people who are dancing to the lyrics, rolled up like a deuce, another runner in the night. Right? And the uh, vibe of both sides is completely different. Right? Um, yeah, so at that point, <laughs> I just decided to get the hell out of there. Nostalgia is uh, definitely not what I would say for the uh, for the faint of heart. But. There's always the idea of getting out of a stressful situation and going to that favorite place you know you can always go to where you're always welcome and where everything is always in stock, the Video Street Video Store. Let's go there now, and I'll see you after. everyone by now you pretty much have had to have heard that the summer's big movie is batman returns in its first couple of weeks it has already grossed more than a hundred million dollars at the box office and it is already creating controversy some parents contend that batman returns which is rated pg-13 is actually being marketed for younger children and the movie is just too violent let's get an expert opinion on that from usa today's junior movie critic 10 year old danny slasky please welcome danny It was very violent. It was a total attack against kids, the whole movie. Everything that kids love was being used against them. Like what? Clowns, 
Even the penguin had a ducky boat. And so things that kids could identify presents with. Presents and mobiles. All that type of stuff were using to hurt kids and capture kids. Penguin's total goal was to hurt kids. You think it was scary then? Definitely for kids. Yeah, for you? Um, I was I was actually a little bit scared, and I have never been scared of a movie like this before. Yeah. I came out of Terminator 2, fine. Yeah. <laughs> what, what do you think about the possibility of younger kids seeing this movie? You're 10, and it frightened you. It's just not for younger kids. Um, Penguin always had goop coming out of his mouth. Um, Catwoman took her claws and played tic-tac-toe on a man's face. It was just so violent for kids. And with all the McDonald's toys, it's making it sound like it is for kids, and it's not. Yeah, actually, Danny, you bring up an, an appropriate point there, because let me, let me, I have had this lady hold these for me, thank you. Because I wanted to show you uh, that all the hysteria surrounding Batman has caused McDonald's to do a Happy Meal promotion, and, and you know, who's buying Happy Meals, 13-year-olds and over? Um, and these are the toys that are on the market now. Of course, the whole Batman series. So it, it is all geared toward younger kids. These toys are for four and up. Uh, let's take a look now at the controversy that this has created. It's the most hyped movie of the summer season, Batman Returns. It's got a lot of violence. <laughs> some sexual innuendos. So it's rated PG-13, a warning to parents that some material in the movie is not appropriate for children under 13. But some parents say the marketing for the movie is directly targeting kids who are much younger. So how come you want to go see the movie? Because I think it's interesting. What about you? Um, I've seen a lot of commercials, and I think it's going to be a good movie. Here you go. Catwoman. Even before the movie came out, Toy stores were stocking the shelves with Batman paraphernalia for kids four years old and up. Once the movie broke, uh, it really started flying off the shelves. As soon as we can put it on the shelves, the customers are taking it off. Batman, there's something going on at McDonald's. Better check it out. And the McDonald's promotion is clearly aimed at kids. Buy a Happy Meal, get a bat toy, even if you're too young to actually see the movie. Some parents are exasperated. I think it's not appropriate at all that they're doing this kind of tie-in for the kids. And when she drives by the movie, she says she wants to go see the movie. And when I tell her she can't see it, she bursts out into tears. Joining us now are Barbara McLean and her nine-year-old daughter, Kara. About a half an hour into the Batman Returns movie, they walked out. And Brad Curl, who belongs to an organization that promotes family entertainment, Batman Returns did not get their seal of approval. Please welcome them. Obviously, you had seen the commercials about Batman Returns in the ads. Did you have any idea what it was going to be like based on that? I think that uh, a lot of the reason that we went to see Batman Returns was based on a lot of the marketing issues. I'm usually quite vigilant about the movies that my children see. I do not let them see PG-13 movies if I haven't seen them first. Um, I have a 12-year-old son. He has been after me for months to see Terminator 2, and he has not seen that. I'm usually very vigilant about that, but I do think that the marketing confused us a little, and a lot of the reason that we went to see it was based on what my memories of Batman were from when I was a child. The TV series. The, oh, actually, 
even probably before that, and that would be the, the whole series of comic books, which were very, very defined, good versus evil. It was not real violence, rather inferred violence, and it was justice and morality and a lot of other issues that I think are, are, are missing from many of the films that we see today. Certainly from Batman Returns, Certainly in your view. Batman. All right, Kara, why did you want to see the movie? Um, well, I thought that it would be different than it actually was. And it didn't, I didn't think it would have as much violence as it did. Yeah, what did you think of it? You saw about 30 minutes of it before you I left. I didn't like it. No, did it scare you? Yes. Yeah, you thought it was violent? Yes. Yeah, did you have bad dreams afterward or not? No. No, but it wasn't, you didn't want to stick around to the end, that's for mm -hmm. sure. No. Yeah, Barbara, what happened 30 minutes in that made you leave? Well, I think actually in the beginning of the film, um, there were some issues that I found were very confounding in terms of looking at what I believe to be very important, and that is just general human suffering. The parents have a child who has uh, a defect, which was not something that we ever saw in the comics. They threw him off a bridge into a sewer. He's a baby. He grows up to be the penguin. Catwoman is a woman who gets thrown out of a 20-story building because she speaks her mind to her boss. She's abused. And the issues of good and evil were very confusing and very confounding to the children because here was this woman who had been abused who then comes back and could have been a good person and helping people, and she didn't do that. So I found that the lines were very gray between good and evil. What's right and what's wrong. Danny, did you see younger kids in the theater when you went to see it? How many times have you seen it? I saw it twice to get a real good view of it. And the second time I saw it's it... It's his job, no snickering. He had to see it twice, right? The second time I saw it, when I saw the younger kids, I really wanted to tell them not to see this. It's really scary. Yeah. It's a really scary movie. Brad, what's your biggest complaint with the movie? Well, my biggest complaint is that we have a classic illustration here of kind of the Hollywood and the corporate community being out of touch with the family and out of touch with kids. I mean, McDonald's has apologized to us. They're embarrassed, really, now that they've thought it through. We need a co corporate America that's thinking through the impact they're having on our young people. Our kids need hope. They need mm -hmm. real heroes. Mm -hmm. They need a bright future, not these dark. And, and the film was full of little dirty, really raunchy little dirty jokes and mm -hmm. lots of extreme violence. What has that got to do with inviting six and eight year old kids to the movies? All right. We did invite McDonald's and Warner Brothers and Kenner, which makes the toys on today. They all declined to appear. They did give us a couple of statements. Let's look at the McDonald's quickly. Uh, McDonald's says, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, they wanted to give young people a chance to experience the fun and excitement of Batman. They go on to say, we recognize our responsibility to our customers, and it was certainly not our intent to confuse parents or disappoint children. We're committed to maintaining their trust in McDonald's and sincerely regret any confusion. Warner Brothers says, the movie is rated PG-13. It's up to the parents to take the responsibility of taking their kids to see the movie. And Kenner Products says uh, kids can act out the fun of Batman in a manner that is wholly appropriate for their age group, and that's why they're making the toys. What do you think of those statements, Brad? Well, I think it's, you know, a, a little bit of a cop-out. I don't think they're going to do this again. I think McDonald's will think through better next time the kinds of movies they sponsor. Who do you think sponsor. is really to blame? Is it the makers of the movie, or well, is it the people with, who end up marketing it? We've talked it? with a lot of the, the executives in Hollywood who are in charge of distribution, et cetera, and they, a couple of them have told us, frankly, we're embarrassed by 90% of the stuff that we distribute to kids. We, we don't want our own kids to see it. 70%, 80% of the movies made in recent years are R-rated, and yet they're... They're called horny boy movies, many of them. They're, they're specifically made for teenage boys to take their girlfriends to. So it's, it's, 
it's a con job out there on our kids. Mm -hmm. They're not really caring about the, the welfare of our children. All right, let me get to a commercial break, and we'll come back and continue to talk about Batman Returns. That little wiener kid <laughs> is talking about how uh, the, the makers of Batman Returns really weaponize uh, kids that things uh, things that kids find friendly against them, like how Penguin has a ducky boat and he, and he's got mobiles and. <laughs> Either that's that's one fairly smart kid who's really sure in his opinions, or, or I, I feel like um, you know he's being fed a line there by his parents, or I, I'm not trying to be conspiratorial or anything. Whatever. You know. <laughs> yeah. And as for Kenner Toys, you know, who says that uh, kids can act out their own Batman fantasies in ways that they see as uh, appropriate for their age group, you know. All I got to say is I was uh, 10 years old when Batman Returns came out, and I got a Batman and a Catwoman doll, and I'll tell you what I did, what I did there. I'll tell you what I did there. Oh, geez. Well, thank you so much for joining me here on the Midnight Citizen Show. This has been uh, one kooky, gonzo time together. I want to remind you again, I am on uh, online at MikeBooty.com slash the Midnight Citizen. You can also find me um, at Midnight Citizen Podcast on Facebook. Twitter, Citizen Midnight, Instagram at Mike Booty. I'm all over the place and in different identities as well. So uh, if you ever get confused, just to, you know, uh, yeah, the best place to find me is on MikeBooty.com slash The Midnight Citizen. You can listen to me on Stitcher, Apple Podcast, Spotify. I'm all over the place. Yeah. As well as on OnSug, the Overnight Scape, O-N-S-U-G.com. We'll see you over there. Yeah. And until next time, keep your eyes open.